the reality is that the patient is the biggest and the most underutilized resource in the healthcare industry, and it shouldn't be that way. That's why I believe in working in collaboration with the doctor, but one must be empowered to take charge. We can't hand it over completely. Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips for people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy, or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts, and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Let's go. Hey, you're on air with Ella, and today I am joined by author, researcher, well-respected citizen scientist, Emily Goldmears. Hey, Emily, welcome to On Air with Ella. Hello, how are you? Thank you for having me. Now, where are you today? I'm in Los Angeles. Emily, thank you so much for joining us from LA today. Could you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Well, I'm a research analyst and a citizen scientist. I am a former lawyer who used my research skills that I learned in both law school and practicing law and switched to science, an area that I love and am passionate about. And I want to share my passion with other people. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Well, I learned quite some time ago, long before the pandemic, that we have a real science literacy issue in this country. And it's a problem. And I'm not quite sure what the source of it is, if they're not teaching it in a salient way in the schools, and they're not getting people excited enough about it. But science affects everybody. And there are many different types of sciences. But it's really important. And this was illustrated and confirmed by the pandemic that people need to embrace science. And as a citizen scientist, I'm trying to convince people of the fascinating aspects of science and that they too should embrace science. You talk a lot about in your research focuses on the intersection of functional and allopathic medicine. Can we get some definitions on the table first? We have talked about functional medicine on the show before, integrative functional medicine. Can you help us set the table here? What is functional medicine and what is allopathic medicine? So functional medicine is a term that's used interchangeably with, I'm sure people have heard of the term holistic medicine and integrative medicine and even alternative medicine. And there's some overlap. Oh, also in precision medicine, there's overlap among all of those names. But the basic concept of each of these types of medicine is that they're trying to determine the source of someone's disease or why they have the symptoms that they have. Rather than just treating the symptoms, they want to figure out why someone has the symptoms because treating the symptoms ultimately never gets rid of them. It merely masks them and the source still remains. Now, allopathic medicine is just another term for conventional medicine. That's what's taught in conventional medical schools. And that's what most doctors practice. Some of them are seeing the light and they're calling themselves integrative doctors or integrative medicine doctors because they spend a lot of time with their medical education learning conventional ways. And they realize that a lot of conventional or allopathic medicine is not designed to treat the diseases that are plaguing people today, which are the chronic diseases that I write about. Um, I don't mean to demonize allopathic medicine because there are certain instances that one wants to go to a conventionally trained doctor. If you're in a car accident, if you have an acute infection, 
and a few other things, they're well-trained to handle these things because it requires a certain approach. But they have proven that they're not well-trained to handle neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular diseases, autoimmune diseases, and these other chronic diseases that are plaguing most people because they just treat the symptoms and they usually do so with pharmaceuticals. There are several big areas of our health that I want to talk about with you from a functional medicine point of view. And I just want to say again, Emily, you didn't go to medical school. We're not here today because we're speaking as doctors. But what I find super interesting about your work is you are speaking as a researcher. Is that fair? It is fair. And as a consumer of healthcare and as a patient. So that's why I'm hoping that people can relate to me in a way that perhaps they can't to their doctor. Because while everything that I write about is backed by science, it's evidence-based. I have 200 footnotes. I'm not making it up. But I approach it from a everyday health consumer's perspective. One thing that I think is very fortunate about your position is that you are able to take concepts and speak to them to anyone at any level, which I think is extremely helpful because one of your big theses, if you will, is that we should each be our own medical advocate, correct? And that we should be empowered. And I have to say, and I'm only speaking as an American when I say this, we are not taught that. That is a power we have to claim because the system does not breathe that. I'm just going to let you comment there. That's exactly right. I completely agree with you. And I in no means mean to demonize doctors. I don't. And I don't think that people should resort to Google to diagnose and treat anything that's bothering them. But I really mean for people to be empowered in order to collaborate with their healthcare practitioner, whomever they choose, you must ask questions and you must not accept what they advise 100% without doing a little due diligence on your own. Because the reality is, is that nobody knows your body better than you. You don't, the doctor doesn't know how you're going to react to anything, to medicine, to food better than you know yourself. Well, let's start getting into some brass tacks here and actually talk about this with some specificity around certain conditions. And something that I've talked about several times over the years on this show, Emily, is oral health and how it is so fundamental, such a building block to the rest of our physical health and wellness and well-being. Well, you open your book with a deep dive into oral health. Why is that? I do. I start there. And as a matter of fact, my editor wanted me, she wondered why I had that as my first chapter. And I explained because your mouth is really the gateway to your digestive health. And we hear a lot about the gut and it's critical, the gut, but the gut is impacted by what you put into your mouth. Because while the gut is central to overall health, the health of the gut is directly influenced by oral health. There's a clear bi-directional relationship between our oral health and our systemic wellness. And if poor oral health is left untreated, pathogenic organisms are free to grow out of control and can contribute to cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, obesity, digestive orders, rheumatoid arthritis, and even infertility. So the key to oral health is you want to have an ecologically balanced and diverse microbiome. And that's important. So when people use mouthwash or other oral care products that have an alcohol base or chemical base, what that ends up doing is that upsets your microbiome, your oral microbiome. The alcohol kills all the bacteria in your mouth. 
both good and bad, and you don't want to be killing the good bacteria. So I, I really believe that people have to make oral health a priority. And the ways that I explain to do that are to eat organic when possible. Stop using mouthwash, toothpaste, and other oral care products that are filled with chemicals, and you'll see a difference. A few other practical, actionable tips that you give us are to avoid silver. Uh, I can never say amalgams. It's fillings. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) But you said it right. Amalgams is exactly right. And I think that that's much more widely understood now. But I also know that some of us are still walking around with silver fillings in our mouth. Amalgams. Can you just briefly highlight for us again why that's not so great for us? They're not because they have a mercury content, even gold crowns that people, a lot of people have. They're not completely gold. They're mixed metals. And when you have gold crowns and silver amalgams, they have cross reactivity. And it's an ordeal to get all of the metals removed in your mouth. But if you think of how close your mouth is to your brain, you don't want to have a lot of metals that are that close to your brain because the results are not good. And if you do choose to go through the ordeal, and there is some expense associated with removal of metals in your mouth, you have to make sure that you go to a well-trained, hopefully a biological dentist who does it properly. Because if you go to the wrong person, they can free up these metals and that can cause problems too. Yeah. The removal can cause problems. Unless you go to the right person who's well-trained in doing it safely. Yeah. And we'll come back to oral health, but that raises a huge question that people have all the time, Emily. A biological dentist is one example. A functional medicine doctor is another example. People are open to the idea of going to see these practitioners, but they don't know how to find them. How do you ask if somebody is concerned about your holistic health? How do you screen for that? Well, there are organizations, I think one is called the IAOMT, and they are these organizations that you can go to online and you can plug in your area where you are located and you can get lists of these doctors that practice in this way. And that's the best way to do it. If you don't have friends who have found them, and sometimes, unfortunately, it does require a little bit of trial and error because you want to get someone who you relate to and who's on the same page as you are and who will work with you. Thank you for sharing those resources. I will definitely list that and a few more in the show notes for this episode. If we accomplish nothing other than reminding people that ownership of their body and ownership of their health resides with them. And whether that person is wearing a white coat or not, they work for you and they work to support your needs and your goals. And honestly, this is not a criticism or a judgment in any way. We just have been conditioned to almost hand the power of our medical health, our physical health over to the expert. But your work and hopefully this show creates a space where They can be the expert and we can still be the advocates for our own health. I agree with what you just said. I mean, because the reality is that the patient is the biggest and the most underutilized resource in the healthcare industry, and it shouldn't be that way. That's why I believe in working in collaboration with the doctor, but one must be empowered to take charge. We can't hand it over completely. 
That raises a story that uh, around a question I had for you about root canals. And I talked about root canals ages and ages ago. And and I almost sounded fringe when I talked about it because I was like, guys, these aren't a great idea. And I had an expert on to talk about why they're not such a great idea. And I, I am a potential candidate for a potential root canal. And I told my dentist, I said to her, I am not getting a root canal. Like that, that is not going to happen. And I was received with kind of like, oh, here we go. She Googled something and now she thinks she's a doctor. And that's the vibe I'm kind of trying to talk about today and highlight today. I need to work with somebody who understands, first of all, they have the same concerns I do. And secondly, they're not rolling their eyes if I choose to advocate for myself differently than they might. So Emily, why would you also be looking for a dentist who did not want to give you a root canal? Can you touch on the practical side of that for us? Well, a root canal is one of the only procedures, oral or otherwise, where a dead organ remains in your body. And it is just a hotbed for infection. I had a root canal from years ago, and I had to have a particular, or I sought it out, a particular screening device, a 3D cone beam x-ray that was able to look deep into the tissue and determine that, in fact, my root canal was infected. And that kind of a low-grade infection, it's not good to have. It really isn't. It permeates everything. And once again, to reiterate, your mouth is close to your brain, and it also connects to your bloodstream. And a low-grade infection will make you feel low-grade poorly. So I had mine removed and replaced it with uh, a material, a different tooth. But there's, I talk about a test in my book called the Melissa test, where you can have blood drawn and based upon your own blood draw, you can determine which dental materials you will have the least adverse reaction to. And I thought, how great. I mean, I believe strongly in personalized medicine. I understand that it's away in the future and artificial intelligence will have to advance and it needs to be accessible to more people, but it certainly makes the most sense because we are each so genetically and biochemically and physiologically different that what works for one person may not work for the next person and could be downright harmful. And that is the basis of our current healthcare system. One size fits all. Fantastic. So if this is a subject of interest to you, just know that Emily has a great deal more resources and more in-depth information in her book. I will share also, I had a root canal on my front tooth and I had the same experience. And I also know that root canals on your back teeth are supposedly more risky, more at risk uh, for longer term. There's something about using them to chew that aggravates and exacerbates the condition that you identified. But yes, and antibiotics will not <laughs> will not clean up an infection that has been sealed off by definition, because that's what a root canal does. It seals in an infection that cannot be reached with antibiotics. So yeah, once I interviewed that gentleman, it sent me down a whole rabbit hole, Emily. <laughs> exactly. But it's fascinating to learn these things. And what someone might do is if you can print out studies, I mean, Certain doctors won't respond favorably, but at least you can back yourself up and you can show that you're not randomly looking at Google and getting pseudoscience, but there's hard evidence supporting some of these concepts. Well, we talked a little bit about oral health and you touched on gut health. And of course, we've done many, many a show on gut health on this podcast, Emily. But there is an element of this that I have never talked about before, and I'm starting to learn more about it. So I want to learn from you. And that is the vagus 
nerve. And here is everything I know about the vagus nerve summed up in one sentence. The vagus nerve is the longest nerve of the autonomic nervous system in the human body. And it runs from your brain all the way down through the neck, chest, abdomen, and it connects your brain to your gut. Is that right? That's exactly right. You summed it up perfectly. And that's, there are ways that you can make your vagus nerve work more optimally. Simple things, free things, things like humming, like gargling, singing, and for that activates your vagus nerve. But when you have dysfunction in your vagus nerve, it affects many systems in your body. So it's something to pay attention to. And I don't understand this. So I want a little bit, I want like vagus nerve 101, because what I understand is the brain and gut obviously have a relationship, right? They're in constant communication and they're in communication via the vagus nerve. And what I learned from you is that the vagus nerve is responsible for the function of the heart, the lungs, digestive tract. You know, it sounds important. Our state of mind affects the state of our gut and vice versa. But what I didn't realize is I don't know how to take care of my vagus nerve or even what I'm doing. So will you tell us a little bit more about why we should care? Well, you should care because it affects everything. I mean, your brain, your gut, if they're not functioning optimally, you'll have problems. One will have problems. And so that's why one should be very concerned with it. And there's a measure, a metric called heart rate variability, and that's a measurement of stress it's almost unconscious stress. And there are certain devices, and I go into in my chapter on tracking and devices, and it can measure your stress that you're not even aware of, sometimes at night. And that is something that you want to focus on. And it's all connected to your level of stress. And stress, as we know, is one of the pillars that even if you have every other pillar perfectly optimized, that is your sleep and your nutrition and your movement, if you are under chronic stress, you will have bad results. And that chronic stress is to be distinguished between acute stress, because I go into a concept which I find fascinating called hormesis. And hormesis is a concept which is defined as exposure to acute, short-acting stress extremes like cold, heat, Etc., they can result in adaptation. Your body will adapt. If you turn your shower to very cold for 30 seconds and you do that consistently, your body becomes adaptive to that. And ultimately, the result of that adaptation is increased resilience. And that should be the dominant goal for everyone because we cannot really prevent everything that's coming down the pike to get us, you know, the next pandemic or whatever there is out there. But what we can do is improve our resilience. And once we do that, we will be able to fight off whatever is coming at us. This is really, really important because chronic stress is deadly and everyone thinks of stress as negative and bad, but intentional and acute stress, is that hormesis, the the exposure to short-term stress? Exactly. That can build resiliency. It can promote hormonal benefits from what I understand. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who are into biohacking and and living to their 120 will regularly expose themselves to that type of stress. So all stress is not the same, just like all fat is not the same. And we should come up with different words for it. So you are advocating for exposure to short term stressors, correct? Yes, absolutely. It's like that expression, that which does not kill me will make me stronger. 
part of the problem of the American public is we live deep in our comfort zone. You know, we're in climactically controlled environments. You know, if we're inside with our heat and our air conditioning, and we're not exposed to a lot of the stressors that our ancestors were exposed to. It's just really important for us to get out of our comfort zone. I got to ask you, what do you do to create that type of intentional stress in your life? This episode is brought to you by the Live Better Start Now Retreat held in Miami Beach, September 29th through October 2nd. There are a few seats left and I would love for you to be in one of them. I have spoken a little bit about what this women's retreat is. I've told you that there are workshops involved, guest speakers. I've told you that when you have an experience like this, you create new connections that you will have for life. You have a ton of fun, but I haven't really gone into what you walk away with. And that's what I want to share with you today. If you attend the Live Better Start Now retreat in Miami, the weekend of September 29th, you will walk away on October 2nd with a new perspective, a new perspective on your life, on the things you are trying to accomplish, on the things you are trying to get clarity on. Once you see these things, you cannot unsee them. So for that reason, it is life-changing. Another thing that you walk away with, guaranteed, is a fire in your belly inspiration, but not just inspiration and motivation that revs you up and sends you on your way. It's teaching you how to tap in to that inspiration, how to tap into that fire, a shortcut, if you will, whenever you need to reinvigorate, reset, reconnect any time in your life going forward. The third thing that I wanted to share with you that you will walk away with is new tools, tactics, actions, plans to equip you to be more accountable to yourself, but also give you more in the how. So you're not just making connections. You're not just having the best time with me. You are also leveraging the power of community, the tools that you gain during the weekend, and the thing that happens when you tap into a collective that can't happen as an individual. In any case, if you have any questions about the retreat, I want you to call me. The phone number is in the show description. It's 202-681-0388. But if you can't be bothered with writing that down, I don't blame you. And it's in the show notes and the show description. Okay, give me a ring. I'll answer any questions you have. I hope to see you in Miami. Go to onairella.com for all the details. I'm an experimenter. I love to try all things. And I must add, they don't always turn out well. So, um, but you never know what's going to turn out well and what won't. And I used to joke that I had a very small window of temperature tolerance between 68 and 72. Uh, that was my happiest. But I've learned that I have to get out of that and I have to expose it. So I do, I try to do as often as I can turn my shower at the for the last 30 seconds to very, very cold. I still find it highly unpleasant, but I understand the benefits that result from it. And I'll sit in a sauna, an infrared sauna. I despise extreme heat. I really am not built for extreme heat, but I make myself do it for 20 or 30 minutes, knowing that there are benefits to that. Even things like HIIT, which is high intensity interval training, that's a form of acute short-lived stress where you sprint for two minutes and then you walk for five minutes and you do a couple of cycles of that. 
So all of those are examples of hormesis or acute stress. Well, I appreciate the examples and I appreciate the cold, hard truth that like, it's not fun. (laughs) It's not fun, but you know, getting sick is not fun either. And so that sort of is what motivates me to, you know, for a brief moment, it's okay to experience discomfort if the benefits are real. I wanted to ask you also about supplements, Emily, and I know you have a hot take on this. Can you share a little bit about some of the mistakes you see us making when it comes to supplementation? Absolutely. And by the way, my protocol evolved because I made so many mistakes. I used to read these articles that would tell you, um, they would advise you to take a particular supplement that would increase your mitochondrial biogenesis. And I would think, I want some more mitochondria. I need some. That sounds great. Exactly. And so I would get that supplement just willy nilly. I would begin taking it. And then I thought, you know, this is probably not. A, a prudent protocol. And I did much more research. And the things that I learned were shocking. First of all, everything reacts with each other. Nothing acts alone. So many of these supplements and vitamins that are advised, they act synergistically. As by example, during COVID, I think that we all read, people were advising that we should take zinc because zinc is antiviral. But I never heard anyone say, but be careful because zinc and copper are synergistic. And if your zinc levels get too high, your copper level will fall down and they'll be out of balance. And that's not a good thing. So one of the things that I would tell anybody is don't ever take anything until you test first. It's a small added expense because supplements are expensive. But before you agree to take anything, even if your doctor is telling you to take it, unless you have done testing and there's minimal testing and there's elaborate testing. You can test your micronutrient status, which I think is a good idea and learn about your minerals. In addition to the vitamins, the basic ones that the doctors are going to test for are B and D and maybe a couple of others, but there's so many more that are important to learn what your baseline is. And I'm very anti-multivitamin. Most doctors tell you to take a multivitamin. And the problem that I find with multivitamins are are multiple. One is that the amount of each mineral or vitamin contained in the capsule are so small that they're probably not going to do any good at all. And if you already have a sufficient amount of any of those, be it B or C or whatever, you don't need to supplement. And then the final problem with them, which is a problem across the board with supplements, is that they are they contain a lot of excipients and binders and fillers and other bad chemicals that we don't need to be adding the supplement industry is anywhere between 40 to 150 billion dollars depending upon which source you refer to and it is really like the wild west it's not completely unregulated but it should have far better regulations because i think there are 14 conglomerates that own all of the supplement supplement makers. And when you see doctors or other people that are selling their supplements, what they've done is they've white labeled their supplements, which means that most of these supplements are being made in a factory in China where there's not the same quality control or regulations. And who knows what's in them? I mean, at best, there's just not the same amount of the ingredient that's stated on the label. 
But at worst, there are some other bad things that are included in these supplements. And doctors will tell you, you don't need supplements, the ones that aren't selling supplements of their own. But many of them will tell you, just get all your vitamins and minerals from food which would be great to do if that was possible. But the reality is it's not possible because our soil has been so degraded of minerals that most of the food that we're eating is devoid of nutrients or has very low nutrient profiles. So unless you're going to grow your food in your backyard and amend your soil, chances are that we're not getting sufficient vitamins and nutrients from our food supply. So you say test, don't guess. And we'll talk about testing in just a moment. But what I really appreciated that you did in the back of your book, you list companies that you trust because this does leave us kind of holding the bag going, well, then if we need something, if we are in fact low in vitamin D, then where do we get it? And I appreciate that you did the work to list some of the trusted companies because I don't think we realize the extent to which we are vulnerable here, Emily. I don't think... For example, we've talked a few times on the air about how when you're buying something from Amazon, you don't even necessarily know that it's verified from that company. It could be some dude in his garage, you know, swapping out vitamins that he bought at Target. Like we don't know. There's there is no quality control in that regard. But less dramatically, something that I don't think people are as aware of is the white labeling. And this is so incredibly important. A lot of us are unwilling to buy supplements from say, uh, you know, the drugstore around the corner. Like we know that we know it's got filler. We know it's got dyes, et cetera. So we're not doing that. What I don't think we realize always is that some of the brands we do trust or look to because someone we know or uh, someone we trust is marketing them, they're white labeled and they came from the same factory. Yeah, I don't think they even know. I mean, first of all, years ago, it would have been unheard of for a doctor to sell anything. Somehow that conflict of interest seems to have vanished, and many doctors do. There's so many nuances that most people don't acknowledge, such as even with vitamin D, which you just mentioned, one should take D3, not D2. And when you do take vitamin D3, you must take it with K2, because that will keep it from leaching the calcium and having the calcium circulate in your arteries, which you don't want. So there's a lot of nuance to this area that people need to be conscious of. And my last chapter is a resource chapter. And for all the the preceding 18 chapters, I've done the work of researching what I believe are trustworthy companies and products and services so that people who don't have the time or the inclination to do that research, they can just flip to chapter 19 and look at all that work. Okay. Last question for you. And this conversation begs this question. How do we test? Because a lot of us don't know how to even get these tests. And I mean, even I, who I spend a lot of time in this world, Emily, and I still don't really fully embrace or understand that I can order some of these tests myself. Can you talk to us a little bit about how we can spearhead our own medical testing? Empower us. Absolutely. So, you know, the conventional or the allopathic doctor will do very minimal, very basic tests. You know, they'll do some blood tests that will give you not great information because they're based on what's called reference range. And the reference range is what's normal, which I have no idea who is normal. Most of the clinical studies up until recently have been done on white males and how they react to anything probably has no bearing at all on how women 
of different sizes will react. But so that's that. But so functional doctors or holistic doctors or integrative doctors, they have access to a lot more testing. And you can literally test everything. And each different body fluid will give you different information. But you can also do certain testing on your own. There are websites and there are platforms where you can get the test and oftentimes included in the price of the test is an evaluation. That's critical because you don't want to do a test and be unable to evaluate it. For example, there's a test that I love for hormones that not a lot of doctors do. It's called the Dutch test. And what that does is it is a urine-based test, but it tells you about your hormonal metabolites and how you are excreting the hormones, which is really important because the blood test may tell you how much hormone you have in your serum, but you don't know how much is circulating and how much you're excreting. So it's missing a big component. But one issue with the Dutch test is it's really, really complicated. And my advice is you need to get a knowledgeable practitioner who can help you evaluate your results. And just to highlight one more time, because I just find this book so useful, but you share in here a a whole lot of options for labs, including private medical labs and then direct to consumer blood work where you can just order it yourself. And then I'm assuming these companies help you with interpretation and or you can take it to your integrative physician or practitioner. Absolutely. Emily, you are a font of information. This book is such a helpful resource. I'm going to not just link to it as I normally would do, but I'm going to put it in my Ella library on Amazon where the books that I really rely on the most go. I really think very, very highly of this. I think it's incredibly useful because instead of just opening our eyes to the problem, you're extremely specific about many, many, many different solutions. So I think you've done us a wonderful service and I thank you. Well, thank you for your kind words. And I've enjoyed talking to you, Ella. Thank you for this opportunity. Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and all the links shared today at onairella.com. There's no with, it's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening, thank you for sharing the show, and thanks for inspiring me. You are, quite simply, awesome.